So, Rob, I have been looking forward to this. Uh, one, I'm excited for us meeting up in person next week. That's going to be a good time. Uh, however, the people who are listening in, they have no idea who you are and what you do. How would you self-describe? Sure. Uh, so I'm Rob Howard. Uh, I'm the founder of Howard Development and Consulting. Uh, my core business is that I run a web design and web development firm. I've been doing that since long before 2009, but 2009 was kind of the start of this particular business and, you know, this spinoff of my many web design and development journeys. So that's something that I started to do literally as a teenager, uh, you know, coding, um, freelancing, kind of the amateur stuff, uh, you know, late high school and college, I started to get more professionalized with it. Uh, and then after college, this was, you know, in the early 2000s, I went out into the world, kind of heard the market calling that web and tech were the place to be. Um, but, you know, I also have passions in publishing, uh, advertising, journalism, uh, all those things. So, um, you know, my main business is really mixing all those things together um, and providing client services. But the stuff that you and I do together is more about kind of another pillar of my business, which is education through courses, teaching, workshops, and all that type of stuff. So since uh, roughly 2015, I've been building out a variety of education uh, products, courses, you know, small workshops, stuff like that, uh, some around business and freelancing, uh, most recently around artificial intelligence, because I kind of have a, you know, mix of, uh, you know, tech knowledge with industry knowledge with, uh, you know, a handful of other uh, skill sets and, and pieces of experience there. So um, I really enjoy the education stuff. The client services stuff is, is always fun, but is, um, you know, a different feel, right? And, and a totally different business model. So one of my philosophies is that I like to uh, do more things whenever possible. I know that kind of is uh, sometimes against the grain of the advice of like, you should be hyper-focused, you know, on one thing, but my personality and, and style really lends itself to lots of rapid experimentation, uh, diversification of business models. Um, and, you know, as we'll talk about, that doesn't always succeed overnight, but I think it lends a lot of uh, resilience and uh, anti-fragility to business and life. So that's kind of my, my big picture thing. Um, and, uh, you know, if you were coming into my orbit today, it would probably be either web design and development as a client or uh, learning about AI or learning about building a, a digital agency. I love that. There's so many points that I want to jump into there, but it also made me think about a book, uh, one of my favorite books, actually, uh, Scaling Up by Vern Harnesh. Do you know that one? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So like one of the things he talks about, I think it's like either in the introduction or like chapter one, there's this quote, uh, I I remembered it and just hearing what you just described about, you know, having a diverse uh, set of interests, you know, and like different lines of business. He's yeah. like, all product businesses to continue growing, eventually add services. And mm -hmm. all service businesses to continue growing, eventually add products. So let's do away with the distinction between product business versus service business, because as you continue to grow, it's probably going to be a hybrid. Well, I think that, you know, touches on a, a, like a really common fallacy that I hear from a lot of people, which is, um, you know, especially when I'm teaching people who are doing freelancing or doing client services, you know, they often come into the idea of growth in the mindset of, I have to create a software as a service product so I can stop doing client work. Right. And mm. if you look at it that way, like they're creating 
a dichotomy that does not need to exist, right? And instead, you know, you can have a healthy client services business that also is part of the ecosystem with your other products, whether they're subscriptions, whether they're courses or, uh, you know, pieces of software you sell or, or any combination of those things. And, um, you know, to me, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of, do you remember the book from many years ago, Escape from Cubicle Nation? Uh, it was actually, it, it was, it was an okay book with a very like intense title. And I feel like there's so many people who are in that escape mindset where they're like, yeah. I got to get out of client services. I've got to start selling a course and make a million dollars off of a course or whatever software as a service, venture capital. Uh, so, you know, um, my philosophy is more like, uh, you know, if you have like a reasonably good structure to your day and you enjoy the creativity of like launching new businesses and ideas, like there's no reason that you should be only doing one or like being forced to stop doing one thing to start doing the next thing because in practice you don't really know what's going to stick right so you kind of have to try a lot and also over the course of a 30-year career like you're going to change right and i think that's one of the like you know now that i'm almost 40 you know i look back across 20 years of of you know working as essentially a, a web developer um and i'm like you know like there's still stuff that I'm, there's some stuff that I'm still doing that I was doing 20 years ago. There's some stuff that I don't want to do anymore. There's a lot of new stuff, you know? And I think, uh, you know, to not get bored and also not have your customers and clients get bored of working with you, like you do have to be evolving. And that means testing out new ideas and, you know, new lines of business and all that stuff. I really, really like that. Uh, one of the threads uh, within what you shared you know, at least that uh, one of the threads that uh, made me think of the next thing that I want to talk to you about is this uh, phrase that you coined when you were describing to your team why even do online courses because they're like, hey, we're a services company, like why, why are we why are we doing this whole build a course thing? And I really love the way that you described it, which is courses are self-directed client projects. You know, and I, I found that just to be so clarifying, you know, it's like, all right, in service-based business, you know, usually we as a service provider, we're leading the project, you know, uh, but then uh, in the context of course or training, the client is setting the pace. They are essentially leading the project. And so it's all that different. The format changes. Uh, and of course, there's some of the structures in there uh, that change as well. How did you come to that realization? Yeah, so that's a great question. I'm going to think about the how I came to the realization for a second. Uh, but um, yeah, so basically, you know, I think, um, that, you know, this touches on what we were just saying is like, if you're a services company, it feels weird to do products because there's this expectation of like, oh, you're doing products to escape from services, right? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, you're not doing that. You actually are trying to build a more diversified business like it um, is it can be short-sighted to focus on only one. And also you're going to eventually bump in to the ceiling of some things if you only stick to one line of business, right? Whereas multiple lines of businesses, business can really build upon each other in like a very like sort of positive spiral type of way, if that makes sense, um, positive feedback loop. So that being said, you know, I was looking for a way to quantify what we're doing and why right? And sort of what the hypothesis is. So with a project, with a client, there is less need for like a hypothesis because it's like, okay, this client would like us to build them the following website. 
their budget is $40,000. Like there's a little bit of like give and take around what's the exact scope, what's the exact timeline. But basically the proposition is very clear. You're going to do a certain amount of work and the client's going to pay you $40,000. Then, you know, it's important for you to make sure that you're not spending too much time on it or it's unprofitable. You're not paying your team more than you're getting paid. You're not burning the midnight oil on it and being miserable, right? But, you know, except, you know, there's those bad edge case scenarios, but basically, you know, money's going to come in and there's going to be some like profitability to the deal, right? Mm -hmm. um, the courses are really the reverse of that in terms of time. But if you think about it in terms of like, uh, you know, if you reframe it as the course is a project that is self-directed, then it's, I think, a little bit easier to digest, right? So in the same way that you would work, let's say, 100 hours on a project and get paid $20,000 for it, you could work 100 hours on a course and then sell 20,000 copies of it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, you can kind of look at it as a project that just gets paid at the end instead of a project where you get a deposit at the beginning, right? Yeah. We'll div dig more into like how to sort of mitigate risk on that because one of the big problems is like, well, what if you go put in a hundred hours and nobody buys it, right? But of course there's ways that we've worked out to make sure you're not going too deep before you really know that people are going to pay for it. Um, but I found that that was, I mean, you'd have to ask my, my uh, employees if they actually found that convincing, but I think it's a useful frame, you know, to say, um, Hey, like, you know, for example, uh, we have a course that we started working on in February. And since then it has sold uh, over $60,000 total in sales. And it'll actually, it's more than that because there's a few payment plans that are still running and stuff like that. So, you know, if a client had come to me in February and said, Hey, I want you to build a course and I'll pay you $60,000 for it. I would have been like, hell yes. Right. But when I made the, you know, leap in February to say, Hey, I'm going to build this thing. I sure hope that it works. I want to test it. I want to do all these things. Like, I think that it's much more difficult for somebody uh, to take the leap into that project when there's, it's seemingly less certainty, right? Of course, you also are exchanging, um, you know, risk and, and uh, certainty and payoff in, in a variety of ways, right? So this course that is done now, um, is it only going to sell 60,000? It almost has nearly infinite upside in theory, right? Yeah. I could go sell 600,000 of it in the next year with the right mix of advertising and, and lead generation and stuff like that. Whereas a client project usually has a pretty strict ceiling on it, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's no way that that $60,000 website project could ever be a $600,000 revenue stream, right? Uh, you'd have to go get more and more, but like, and you're doing more sales work, you're starting over every time. So, um, you know, there's way to, there's ways to systemize both, systematize both things. Mm -hmm. But I think, um, you know, if you're coming out of client services, you're used to basically getting paid by the project or by the hour or something, reframing uh, course and product development along those lines can be a useful, um, you know, at least kind of psychological exercise to help you realize like, hey, there actually is payoff to this. Like it actually would be awesome if we could just create our own $60,000 project every few months instead of constantly being out there trying to sell to clients, dealing with the ups and downs of the industry and demand and, and competitors and all this stuff, as opposed to being able to say, hey, you know what? Every few months, I'm going to do a new um, education product. I know I'm going to put X number of hours in. I can expect to make X amount of money off of it. And uh, you know, maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe the money doesn't come in until later, but still 
just as good, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially if you have both things going, right? So client services creates a, a revenue stream, courses create a revenue stream, they complement each other in a really nice yeah. way. And uh, there's two threads uh, within that that I would just want to underline and dive uh, into. The first is with the quantifying uh, of just first, you know, the 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 thinking model of uh, client projects, you know, uh, courses or self-directed client projects. What was really helpful, I think, that you did was then being able to compare and contrast and then explain to the team, hey, here's our profitability per hour for yeah. client projects versus here's our profitability per hour for when we launch a course for them to just be able to see very clearly. And I think uh, for yeah. some of the courses you did in the past, it was like a 10x difference yeah. between like the difference between like when you when you when you look at you know employee time as a as a cost when you look at uh you know all those things the you know the profit margin on one was like 40 percent from mm -hmm. client services you know on a good project assuming like things don't go haywire and then you know it was like uh, yeah five or ten x that right so the difference between a hundred dollars an hour and a thousand dollars an hour in some cases in terms of what the payoff is um so yeah, it's, I mean, the, the math adds up, but what is less tangible is that there is a risk and uncertainty that exists in your self-directed course projects that largely doesn't exist in a client project. Like mm -hmm. I would argue that, you know, there is risk because some clients will pay you. Some clients will try to change the scope at the last minute and kind of screw things up. But, um, you know, for the most part, you're going to get paid for client work, uh, on a reasonable time frame at a reasonable rate. So that is, you know, feels more certain. Um, but you know, there's definitely, there's definitely some psychological, uh, hurdles to get over if you're just thinking about going from client services into building products, because it's just, you know, there's more upfront investment to some degree. There's less guarantee that you're going to get that, you know, windfall or that $20,000 check somewhere along the way. Um, so, uh, it, it is a very different mindset, even though I think you could do the math on both and be like, actually, you know, we should do, we should definitely do both of these, right? And not we should do one or the other, but like these both make sense and can complement each other in terms of, you know, where I put my time, the ebb and flow of client work is naturally going to go up and down anyway. So if I can have self-directed work mm -hmm. uh, that also makes lots of money, then that's a good thing. So to the point of them complementing each other, one of the things that I thought was amazing that happened uh, when you know, in one of the sprints that you and I were working together is like, we went in with the goal of generating interest, you know, leads and, you know, and qualifying those leads and eventually, you know, uh, enrolling, uh, clients, uh, for the course. But then it started to also generate business for your services as well. You yeah. know, and so it's like the marketing for the courses then generated, you know, client service work, uh, and then you know, it, it, it becomes this really nice, uh, reinforcing, uh, ecosystem on the marketing and sales side where you don't necessarily need to just, uh, you know, just people hearing about you in, you know, in general or Howard development and consulting just generates, uh, interest in doing business with you in some format, you know, that works best for whomever it is that's hearing about you. So it really is a complimentary. The other thread within what you shared just now that I want to dive into is the fact that, yes, there absolutely is uh, risk. Uh, there is definitely uncertainty. And I want to call back now to something that you seeded at like the beginning of our conversation, which is how to mitigate some of that risk. What are yeah. some of the things 
that you've done uh, that have worked really well. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, I mean, I've been doing my own thing as a freelancer or, you know, solo or, or small team business owner, like for basically my whole career. I really only had like one, like anything close to a real job, uh, you know, since uh, graduating college. So I've always been on the side of like, it's everything in entrepreneurship seems more risky, but also I think that we naturally are assigning an inappropriately low level of risk to like having a normal, like traditional job, right? Like, you know, especially, you know, having come into kind of the, uh, the adult world shortly before the great financial crisis in 2008, like it was like, okay, well, it seems pretty obvious that like you could lose your job at any time. It also is pretty obvious that your big client could go away at any time. Like people go out of business, like shit happens, pandemics happen, right? Like all these things I think have taught us that, um, you know, life is just not as predictable as we want it to be. And that is true both on a more traditional, uh, path to your career and a less traditional or more entrepreneurial path to your career. So to some degree though, I think there's always going to be a false sense of security in tradition, right? Kind of like how people are more scared of flying in airplanes than driving in cars, but you're way more likely to get hurt driving the car than you are flying in an airplane, right? Mm -hmm. It's like orders of magnitude different, but we perceive the exact opposite in terms of our fears and anxieties, right? So I think, you know, traditional job versus, uh, you know, freelancing or running your own business is one of those things. And then there's also that same imbalance between client services and products, right? Like we perceive client services to be way safer than products. It's not really true, right? Um, just as we perceive, you know, airplanes to be scarier than cars when in fact the opposite is is reality. So um, there, there are a bunch of ways that we mitigate it. Number one is I think of everything as kind of like a Kickstarter, right? So Kickstarter obviously is, you know, the say where you say, hey, I'm creating a new board game or a new, you know, iPhone case or something. It's going to be the best one ever. We're going to prototype it. We're going to build a page for it. And then if enough people buy it, then we're actually going to make the thing, right? Yep. So we don't literally use Kickstarter, but we have a very similar philosophy to how we do courses, right? So, um, you know, if you have a pre-existing newsletter audience, this is a great way to use that email audience. Otherwise you could do it you know, among your friends with Facebook advertising, however you want to kind of like generate that audience. But basically what you want to do is create the table of contents and like 500 words of a sales pitch for your thing. And this could be a course, it could be a software as a service product. Um, we teach this to our own folks in the AI, um, you know, course as well, because a lot of them are founders or soon to be founders. You know, basically I call it, you know, selling the table of contents, right? Here's the thing, like, what do you think? You know, give me your feedback. And then, hey, this is going to cost $200 when I build it. Do you want it today for $27? Here's the button to click on, right? And this gives you instant validation because, um, you know, the biggest leap is not from $20 to $200. It's from $0 to $1, right? Yeah. So just getting someone to pay even a nominal amount for something is really the hurdle that you need to get over as a creator of whatever type of products, you know? Um, and I would say like, don't even think about like doing any work creating the product until you have at least three people paying, ideally more like 10 or 20 people paying for it. Um, because that's really the signal that it's a good idea, right? And for our AI course, uh, we had an existing uh, newsletter audience for 
uh, WordPress and technology mailing lists. And I said, okay, like, you know, ChatGBT had come out a few months ago. I'm like, we got to do something about this. This is awesome. Like it's going to change everything. Obviously, you know, all the, all the big hype was, was there. Um, and I said, well, let's just see what people want, you know? So I put out essentially the table of contents and we got like dozens of sales in the first couple of days, you know? Um, and then I slowly, you know, built it out, tested higher pricing to a larger group of people. Right. Um, and now we have a product that's, you know, in the $600 range and, you know, is selling, uh, a hundred copies a month or something like that, you know, depending on how much advertising we do. Um, you know, and, and there's plenty of room for us to scale up beyond that. So, um, that being said, I didn't do anything until we finished the presale, right? So you can test the waters with a presale. You can also do this with like new client services, for example, right? Um, so you can pretty much do it with anything, but you know, the, the underlying concept is like, stop building things in secret for a year before you tell anyone and actually do the exact opposite. Show people the outline of what you're going to build explain why there's value to them. This is also a good exercise for you because it forces you to show other people and prove to other people that there's value in it, right? So you can't just be like, oh, it's my beautiful piece of art. Why is nobody buying it, right? It's like, well, people will tell you if you ask, you know, but there's no need for you to spend a year or, you know, tens of thousands of dollars creating something when you can write up a nice, like one pager basically and say, hey, do you want this? You know, we're going to build it. Um, if you want to hop on now, you get it, you know, in two months when I build it, you can get it for cheap, you get it for a lifetime, you know, all these things. Um, so, you know, that basically removes the scenario where, you know, the worst case scenario, if you compare it to the client project is, okay, I spent a hundred hours on it and I made no money, right? What this does is it allows you to spend 10 hours on it, right? And then have a cutoff point and be like, okay, I spent 10 hours putting this idea together. I'm going to show it to a hundred or a thousand people, depending on how big your audience and network is right now. And if I don't get sales, I'm just going to stop and I'm going to move on, you know? Um, and it allows you to, um, you know, completely cut off, you know, that sort of tail risk of spending a year on something to no avail. Right. <laughs> and I think that's what, that's what people fear. Like that's like the, the plane, the proverbial plane crash that people are afraid of with all this stuff. You know, it's like, Hey, I spent all this time on this and it didn't really go anywhere. It's demoralizing, you know? Uh, instead, what you can say is like, I'm not even going to build it. I'm just going to tell you about it and I'm going to give you a deal on it if you want it. And then I'm going to build it. Right. And it's completely turns it upside down. And, you know, on that, in that scenario, like you could test 10 products in a hundred hours. And even if three of them are successful, you're doing awesome, you know, and you've got all this, all this new revenue and these new business ideas that are working and are, are proven. So. I love this uh, because, again, it fully answers the how do you mitigate risk uh, with a course, you know, a self-directed uh, client project when you're getting ready to, you know, send it out there to the world, but also reveals a process for being able to do it repeatedly, which brings me back in time to something that we had worked on like way back in like 2020, which is when we were sending out like one of the very, very first like audience surveys that you and I developed together, which was mm -hmm. designed to be able to just figure out what it is that your people are wanting. Could you tell us more about that piece? How do we go about finding out what it is that people want, what price point they want it at so that we can have some actionable data to go forward? Yeah. So uh, you have a wonderful template for this, for anybody who's listening and uh, would like to see Mark's template, I highly recommend it. But basically the idea is 
um, hey, you know, tell me what to build next, uh, that that sort of thing. And, and we've actually, we've done it in a few ways. We've done it in a very small scale way where it's like, click on three links, which I really like. I'm actually going to send out one of those later this week because I have like three uh, ideas for splinter products from one of my main products. And I just, I really want to see which one people are most excited about, right? Some of them have bought from me, some of them haven't, but you know, there's a very simple way to do it. And then the more in-depth way to do it is, um, you know, I think you have like a four page survey that we have as a Google doc, you know, it asks questions like, what's the most you would pay for this? And at what point would it be so expensive? You'd never want to do it. You would, you would never do it. Right. Uh, would it be better as a two day VIP session or as an eight week self-directed video course or an ebook or any of these things? Um, you know, and it really does a nice job of pulling useful, uh, sort of, uh, qualitative answers out of people, right? Like you're not necessarily going to go add up all the numbers and get your answer, but you're going to get a really deep qualitative look at like what's going on in the heads of my audience, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the fun, the most fun part of that is that the number that people say is too expensive, that they would never buy it is actually the price that your product should be, right? Because yep. what they're really saying is this is the, this is the maximum price that I would pay. Um, so that's always a fun one. Um, but yeah, we've, we, and we've done that, uh, for multiple products, right. Over the years and, you know, updated the survey questions here and there for different topic areas, like freelancing versus learning AI versus, you know, a handful of other, other things. Um, and it consistently gives us like good direction, which we can then test on real customers. Right. And so the, the most recent one that we did was for the higher end um, digital agency MBA course that I'm working on, which has not been produced yet. We are still in the like testing and selling the table of contents phase right now. But, you know, we got price points out of that survey that we felt were very realistic. And we've already gone out and made a couple sales at those price points. So now things are good. We know we're cruising um, and we know we kind of move into the next phase of that. And, you know, this has worked for $50 products and it's worked for $5,000 products. So, you know, building that whole suite of different offerings across different price points is another component of diversification that is really valuable over time. Um, you don't have to do it all tomorrow, but like, mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, we talk a lot about in our own, you know, in my consulting sessions with you, um, you know, and just building that kind of offer ladder. Um, and it's something that I teach to, you know, people who are doing client services with the digital agency course and stuff like that as well. You know, interesting point there to just dive a little bit deeper on is the willingness to pay versus what they actually pay. And I took a look at the last uh, 20 clients that I'd worked with who had sent out surveys and I mm -hmm. did a comparison uh, between how much people said they were willing to pay uh, inside of that survey versus how much they would actually pay at the end of it. And it was fascinating because for yours, specifically for one of the times that we sent out a survey, the number came up to be about like a willingness to pay for just the few people like we had sent it out to. It was like uh, 27,000. And then mm -hmm. for that same like sprint, when you actually went out and launched off for that product, they actually ended up paying 30,000. And it was a fascinating convergence yeah. <laughs> of the data. And I've actually uh, seen that play out a bit more as well. And so that was a question for me that I was personally interested in because it's like, ah, eh, People say they're going to do that, but do they actually do it? You know, because again, you know, words don't always match actions. Uh, but in this instance, particularly what I found is that 
when you've done what you've done, which is you've done the work to build an actual relationship with your audience, they give you quality feedback. Not everybody, you know, depending on your audience, some people are going to complain in the survey that they're filling out a survey, but they're still filling out the survey, uh, which is yeah. <laughs> it's just really interesting. Uh, but uh, they, they take the time uh, to share with you what it is that you should be building for them next. Yeah. Follow-up question for you, though. What has been the most surprising part for you uh, in making a shift uh, towards including courses uh, in your suite of uh, products and services? Probably the biggest surprise that was, you know, I, I, I guess I am instinctively answering that question as the biggest negative surprise because there's been positive surprises too. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that I was negatively surprised about was how difficult it was for us to uh, scale up and delegate the creation of the course content. What I found was that when we, um, you know, did some experiments kind of building a team around like creating one hour workshops, creating five hour courses, um, it was very stressful for everybody on the team. It was, uh, you know, people struggled with like the degree to which it needed to be perfect versus it needed to be good enough, like in all these things. And like, there was never anybody who was really doing anything wrong, but also it was such a more nebulous project than the typical client project where you pretty much have like a straight line from start to finish that I was surprised at um, how hard it was to avoid team members like just, you know, spinning their wheels, uh, you know, unproductively or being stressed out. So both of those things, you know, like even if they're producing good stuff, they're like, oh my God, this is like so hard. Like I'm going to need to take a nap after like delivering a webinar and stuff like that. So I was surprised at that. And I think, um, you know, part of that is just me being like a very like low precision, high extroversion, like personality. Like it's very like, it's fun for me to do a webinar for 300 people where I prepped like half an hour for it. Whereas that would be just like, like the worst case, like paralysis scenario for a lot of people. Like they'd be so stressed out by that. So, you know, everybody's different, but I think I over... I incorrectly um, assumed that creating content would feel the same way that it that it does to me for the rest of my team. And what I found is that it did not. So the content creation stuff is not only difficult, but like you can't just go like kind of assign that to people who are great at other things because it is to some degree unique um, style and a, and a unique, um, not even a unique skill set, but like you have to like it and not everybody likes it. You know, um, so, you know, it's almost like performance in a way. So interesting answer uh, to that piece there. I was listening to an interview just literally uh, this morning. Um, there was uh, it, John Lovell. I'm looking at it here right now. He's a former United States Army Ranger, firearms instructor, and founder of the Warrior Poet Society. He's got this uh, expertise in tactical training and philosophy. And one of the mm -hmm. things that he actually spoke about in that interview that just really stood out to me is like a lot of men uh, come to him uh, who are veterans and they have no problem running towards bullets and yeah. surviving explosives in the field. However, they are terrified about pitching client projects. Yeah. It's just 
just right yeah. like, just, just, yeah. no fear of death but yeah to pitch oneself on jumping an airplane right with a you know uh but not uh not able to you know get on a zoom meeting and, and yeah. sell a project yeah yeah, but yeah I, and i think that's like the perfect corollary to like you know um you know somebody who is a serial entrepreneur who is gonna always you know already in that mindset you know i'm so deep into that mindset I don't even notice it, right? Mm. Um, but if this is new to you, and all of a sudden you're switching from service to product, or from you know military to sales pitches, or whatever that yeah. switch is, like uh, it can have uh, irrational effects on your brain, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like you, it seems silly when you talk about it, right? Because one thing is just obviously so much scarier than the other right. by any possible measurements, right? Uh, but that's not reality. You know, that's not how your, your brain's going to perceive it. So, um, you know, if I could go back and do that again, I would have been much more thoughtful and careful about like mm. dropping people into the fire of doing like live webinars and recording courses and stuff like that, because mm -hmm. it was, you know, 10 times more stressful on the team than I expected it to be. So that was, mm. um, you know, me assuming that it would be the same for everybody because it's kind of easy and fun for me, at least from a, like, easy from the standpoint of like, I don't feel stress or worry or like, I don't have to like take a break after I do it. I'm energized by it, you know? No. Um, but clearly not the case for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. Some people did get into it and they found it rewarding eventually. Some people didn't, but um, yeah, that was a, a surprise uh, in the mm -hmm. sense that, um, you know, especially if you're going to scale up, build that team, even if you're bringing on a salesperson or something, you know, mm -hmm. these are all things where, um, those skill sets are not always, um, not only do the people, does it not everybody have the skills, but not everybody has the desire or temperament to be good at those things, you know? So, um, you know, coming from hiring all web designers and web developers for many years, like pretty much if you're showing up with a job application to be a web developer, like you've already decided and proven you have the temperament to be a web developer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas with some of the um, more, uh, you know, novel stuff, but that we were doing, we were discovering unexpectedly, even to the people who were doing it in some cases that uh, it actually wasn't really a good fit for their style or approach. It makes me think about an email that I actually sent out to my email list, maybe about a week, week and a half ago. It's a concept I've spoken about for years, but the first time I decided to actually put it down on digital paper, which is the uh, four stages of mastery. Have we ever spoken about this? I don't think so. I should be reading all your emails, but uh, tell me more. You're you're a busy guy. <laughs> it's 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 totally fine. Uh, so uh, it's also described as like the four stages of competency, and so mm -hmm. it's it's the first stage is unconscious competence. We don't know that we don't know, you know, yeah. and so we're bad at the thing, whatever the thing is, and 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 we did, we have no idea. We're unaware. Um, mm -hmm. Stage two. We are consciously incompetent. We are yeah. now aware that we suck at the thing. And yep. stage, this is where learning begins. Stage three, yep. we now become consciously competent. Now we can actually deliver some results, but we have to concentrate really hard to be able to make it happen. Yep. Fourth stage, unconscious competence. We don't even think about it. Second, Second nature. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who's listening to this right now is unconsciously competent at understanding English. Yep. <laughs> it's just, we don't think about it, but if we had to turn around and teach English 
to somebody who didn't know it, we wouldn't know where to start. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, one of the, and I think, you know, for your course students too, like, um, you know, I'm thinking about my nine-year-old son because the stage of conscious incompetence is so difficult for him. And I think probably most young kids, right? But for example, uh, he enjoys playing video games. I also enjoy playing video games, but every new game has mm. a curve that is very similar to what you just described. Like, yeah. you know, we, did, we didn't even know about the game. We were consciously incompetent. Now we're going to start playing it, but we have to learn all the controls, learn the new things. And that's very frustrating. And um, it is, uh, there's a whole like psychology around like helping him get over that hump because he hates the idea of not being good at it yet. You know, like mm -hmm. I know that he knows that he could be good at it. He's good at other stuff. Like, why is this so hard? And like, you know, typing was another thing that we, that he's been getting, he's, he's almost unconsciously confident at typing now, but a year ago he was consciously incompetent. It was very frustrating. Right. And you can see how this arc like applies to basically everything, right? Whether it's kids, whether it's your employees, whether it's your, um, course students or, or anybody else. Right. And, uh, you know, getting good at coaching people from stage two to stage three, I think yeah. is really valuable because, um, what, what ends up happening is a lot of people quit between conscious incompetence and conscious competence, right? Mm -hmm. um, so helping people get over that very difficult hurdle in the learning process is a very valuable skill in and of itself. So here's one of the things that I would say that you are really good at, and uh, this is something that uh, many people that I work with are really good at. There's been a suggestion to upgrade the model to a fifth uh, stage, and like the fifth stage uh, is being mm -hmm. able to move between Stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because to teach requires empathy for the stage that somebody's at to be yep. able to then put your mind back in the childlike state or the learning state, you know, to be able to remember what your own challenges might have been, to be able yep. to help walk them through, okay, here's how you break it down and get better at this thing. Yep. Anyone who goes into any kind of teaching role or trying to productize their expertise typically it seems has to do that to be able to break down their process and strategic thinking to their yeah. team if they have a delivered team that's going to be delivering client services or if it's a self-directed client project in the form of a course or training to be able to take on the 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 state of the learner to yeah. be able to help move them along the journey and and you know for somebody who you've been working with for a while or a kid for example you know you can also say like hey do you remember how hard it was to learn how to play Zelda the first time and you sucked at it at the beginning, just like you're having trouble with this other thing now. But remember, over time, you practiced, you got better and better. Now, you don't even have to look at the keyboard or look at the controller. You just know where everything is and it feels like magic, right? And if you can get people to identify, you know, the things that they're already consciously, unconsciously competent at, like that can also really help them like get the motivation to do the next thing right yeah. um everything yeah like there was once a time when you didn't know how to do all the things you currently know how to do right so if you can um you know not only empathize with that but also get other people to identify that in their own like past experiences like that can really help from a learning standpoint the difficult thing i found uh, for some is when we've gotten to the stage of unconscious competence, like we're good at the doing the thing, you know, it might yeah. be somebody who's a service provider yeah. who's just been doing it for, you know, five, 10, 20 yeah. years, however long. 
to then say, okay, you know what? People have been asking me to create a course around this thing. I wonder how I'm going to teach this. Yeah. To be able to then go back and try to remember the extra steps. Uh, you know, I this is something that I see you consistently get better at. You know, uh, and and just the, even with us uh, creating, you know, the digital agency MBA, uh, like just seeing you you had, I, I could see your mind at work, like pulling from yeah. twenty years. Like, like, like I'm good at sales calls now. I'm not afraid to start a sales call today, but like, what about when I did my first sales call? Like I must've been afraid at that point. Right. So thinking about like how you get, yeah, how you get yourself over those different hurdles and also how you actually explain that process to Charlie Russell. What would you say to someone who is at maybe the beginner of their course creator journey and they're trying to think you know, uh, through and feel through getting over the hump of going from, okay, well, I've been delivering client services, but maybe they're feeling hesitant around, you know, creating an online course. Is there any uh, words of advice that you would have for them as far as how they could even just even decide that it's going to be right for them? Because it's not for everyone. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the more you enjoy um, selling, and talking, the better you're going to be in the online course world, right? Like most people will say they don't enjoy selling, but ultimately at some point, like you have to get good at the marketing side of it. So if you're thinking to yourself, the last thing I want to do ever is sell or market something to another person, like you still have to do that no matter what your job is. But I think that that has a outsized importance to course sales. Uh, I'm curious if you, if you agree with that or not, but what I would say is like, you know, there's actually, it's weird because there's actually, it's more important that you be good at explaining the thing and pitching it to people than that the thing is actually good. Like both of those things are important, but like uh, you could get away with a course that's imperfect, but you really can't get away with a sales pitch that is subpar uh, because um, there's a big hurdle to get people over, even though the price points are lower, right? Uh, in most cases. So um you know, I'd say number one, um, you know, if your goal in life is never to do a sales call or sales writing, then it's probably not the right fit for you. That'd be the big thing that I would say is like essentially a disqualifier, right? Because it's just not, you're just naturally going to have to do that, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't mind doing client sales calls, then you will, you may enjoy doing course writing, uh, you know, course sales page writing. You know, we do a lot of individual sales calls for education products now for our higher ticket products and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, but, but I agree like it, it's not for everybody, but if you, if you want to teach, um, you know, the way to do it is do your own thing, like try to avoid like the, like course sales networks where everything is like nine ninety nine, ninety 90 percent off all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, build it as an arm of your current business. Don't quit your day job. Don't look at it as, don't look at it as an escape from client work, but instead a compliment to client work. And then that I think sets you up for like healthy growth and diversification um, without, you know, creating unnecessary like financial cliffs for yourself or anything like that. Like you don't have to drop everything and move to Bali or whatever to do this. Like you just have to like sell an extra $10,000 worth of stuff in the first year. And like, when you think about it that way, like that should be worth it. Like you would go, you would go spend the time on a $10,000 project, right? If the client showed up with the money. So you should at least in theory, also want to spend the time on your own project that might pay you 10,000 or maybe 50 or a hundred or whatever it is. 
in, in future years. So yeah, uh, but it is a mindset shift and it is a different style of creativity. So um, you can take it slow, but also don't um, don't count yourself out uh, too early either because it is it is fun and rewarding if you get it right. Well said. And I would also, to answer your question directly as far as whether or not I would agree, you know, with being good and being able to enjoy the marketing and sales. Yes. And if we reframe how it is that some people uh, think about sales, uh, many people, uh, sales has this um, uh, connotation of, you know, being sleazy or being mm-hmm. basically setting up a win-lose scenario is what a lot of uh, it boils down to. And many people who are service providers, like they're in it because they want to help people. Of course, yes, they want to generate, you know, revenue and, you know, live a quality lifestyle. Uh, but ultimately, uh, there seems to be a lot of service providers that uh, get a lot of fulfillment from being able to improve the quality of somebody's life. And in addition to that, then look at sales as like taking, uh, which again is not an accurate uh, depiction of reality. If the thing that you are selling helps someone, you know, and so then exactly. you know that the thing that you do, like if it helps them, then you're doing them a service to market and sell it well, because marketing is basically creating awareness of not just the problem, but then also around what some of the options for solu- of being able to solve that problem are. And then the selling is then, then okay, showing, you know, educating on the buying criteria and then also allowing them to see what the pathway to them living a better life would be yeah. as well and yeah. allowing them to make that choice. Totally. And, you know, after you get a few people who are like, hey, I quit my job because of your freelancing course and now I'm making more money than I was before, like, you start to get over those like psychological hurdles, right? But yeah. yeah, it can be challenging because I think people equate selling with like like you said, sleaziness, lying, mm-hmm. right? Um, so if you can sell your thing without lying, without being sleazy, then all of a sudden it's proof that you have something really good that is worth it, and people should, um, you know, it's good to expose people to that as opposed to Absolutely. you know a negative. Well said, and to be respectful of your time, where can the people find out more about you? Yes. So uh, for my web development services, check out hdc.dev. That's Howard Development Consulting.dev, HDC. And for the AI course, go to innovatingwithai.com. Uh, you can check out the course. You can just spy on me and what I do to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, build courses and uh, and do sales pitches and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, those are the two main sites uh, where you can check things out. And thanks so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for checking out the show. If you liked it, go ahead and hit the like button and also subscribe so you don't miss another one. It also tells us which ones that you like the most so that we can then do more interviews like that. If you want to go from idea to implementation, though, especially if you're wanting to productize your expertise so that you can scale your impact on your clients and, of course, grow your business, then join our email list. There we're going to talk about how modern consultants can productize their expertise so that they can have a greater impact on the world around them and live life on their terms. If that's up your alley, I hope to see you on the other side. Talk soon.